Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Mina B, and I'm a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles. I'll be chatting with experts, wellness advocates, and others about the power of community care in improving your mental health. We'll delve into topics such as friendships, managing difficult relationships, and most importantly, how to cultivate belonging and support in our lives. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Felicia A. Henry is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. Her research interests include race, ethnicity, gender, class, carceral studies slash geography, environmental sociology, social vulnerability, and community resilience to disasters. Felicia is also the founder of Behind the Walls, Between the Lines, a movement to deepen the awareness of the legacy of racial inequity in America, particularly within the criminal justice system, and inspire activism aimed at its dismantlement. Hi, Felicia. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mina. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited because I'm just going to put it all out there, y'all. So Felicia is my friend in real life. Right. And so I am very excited (laughs) to have this conversation with you more so because, you know, it's really wonderful having friends who are just full of wisdom and full of knowledge. And you are that person. And so I'm going to share you with the world today because I think the world needs to know your wisdom and knowledge in the work that you do. So first off, you are a Ph.D. candidate. in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. However, your research interests are the things that I really want to talk about because they are so robust, but very important, especially in the current climate that we're living in. And you spent a lot of time researching things like race, ethnicity, gender, class, carceral studies, environmental sociology, social vulnerability, community, all of those things. And so can you just walk us through like what you focus on and give us a little more insight into all of these different domains that you are tapping into during your programming? Yes. So it is a lot of things. And so first of all, again, thank you for allowing me to be here. Thank you for sharing me with the world. I think that you are amazing and famous and all of the things. And so I'm so happy to be here. And so my work spans a lot of different topics. And that's one of the reasons why I love it, because I'm not boxed into any particular field or any particular domain, any particular subject area. And so primarily my work focuses on race, class and gender. And so I look at things like intersectionality, particularly of black women, just generally, but also involved in the criminal legal system or in the carceral state. And then I also focus on the intersection of the carceral state and disasters or the intersection of the carceral state and social vulnerability. In my work, I talk about social vulnerability from the perspective of race, gender, class, sexuality, mobility, socioeconomic status. Those things in and of themselves don't make us vulnerable. It's the ways that social systems render these identities vulnerable, right? The ways that social systems say to 
folks who are experiencing poverty, hey, we're going to shame you. Hey, we're not going to give you access to the resources that you need. Hey, we are going to intentionally redline your communities and cut off and constrain your opportunities. That's why they're vulnerable. They're not vulnerable because they're inherently Black or impoverished or living in a particular geographical neighborhood. It's because the social systems render their identities that way. And so essentially my work whether it's talking about disasters or it's talking about the carceral state or it's talking about the environment or it's just generally talking about social systems in the United States, it's always asking the question of the system rather than asking the question of the individuals, right? So what makes someone vulnerable in in a disaster? What makes someone susceptible to criminalization and surveillance from the carceral state? It's the system itself. So how do people become vulnerable to these systems? Yeah, I think it's the way that when we think about the foundations of the country, right, and the ways that particular identities, particular socioeconomic locations were privileged and others were not, right? So when we celebrated, and by we, I mean the general collective American, not always everyone (laughs) is included in that we, But when we celebrate something like Independence Day and when we tout the Declaration of Independence and we say, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness as these tenets that everybody can have, we fail to often bring up the fact that these founders, quote unquote, or these fathers of the Constitution, of the Declaration of Independence, these folks were slave owning white men. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we think about these things, we have to recognize that they weren't talking about the we that they're talking about definitely did not include people of color, marginalized, minoritized communities, but it also didn't even include poor white men, right? It didn't include people, white men who didn't have property. And so when we think about how people become vulnerable, we really have to take a step back and say, what does the foundation of this country look like? Who does the foundation of this country look like? And in what ways have we continued to perpetuate the various narratives, the various constraints, the various systems around those identities and centering those identities in such a way that we disadvantage any other identity. And so when we think about, for example, people who are involved in the criminal legal system formally, so people who end up being incarcerated, they share a lot of similar characteristics. For example, it's disproportionately Black and Brown, disproportionately Black men who are incarcerated of the 2.1 million people who are incarcerated in the United States at any given time. It's not because Black men commit more crimes, right? It's not because Black men are inherently more criminal. It is because the narratives and the ideas around Black criminality apply to Black men in such a way that they then become vulnerable. So when we close our eyes and we think of What do I think of as a quote unquote criminal? Right. And I've done this in my class. I taught a race class this past semester with undergraduates at the University of Delaware. And I asked them to close their eyes and tell me, what do you think of when you think of a quote unquote criminal? I had them just say it out loud without like, you know, filtering it. And immediately I was hearing, you know, tall black men. He's in a hoodie all black on, you know, he has some sort of menacing glare, X, Y, Z. And they were surprised. A lot of them didn't even want to say it out loud. And I was like, listen, this is a no judgment zone. I'm not going to take any grade off for you (laughs) saying this. I'm not going to call you out for saying this. But it was a point of critical reflection to let them know, like, there's a reason why you think of that image. And that's because we're socialized to believe in that kind of framing and that kind of narrative. So, Yeah, to answer your question in terms of how folks are rendered vulnerable, 
we have to think back to the foundations, the narratives, the kind of ideas and ideals that the country is built on, and then ways that all of the other identities, all of the other kinds of people that are not like, you know, these property owning white men are going to end up being caught in the system in one way or the other. Mm. It makes me think about like, Having the world do that exercise, like it's great that your students were able to participate in that. But I think that if you were to ask everyone in society, at least American society, they would probably have the same descriptors that you just named. And it makes me also think about confirmation bias where as you're describing, right, these people who are vulnerable to these systems that are greater than them, but our responsibility as people to be allies and not necessarily saying everyone's role is to be an activist. But if we're walking around with these particular descriptors or stereotypes of people, we don't necessarily realize the role that we play in the consequence of social vulnerability as well. Yes. I think about people who weaponize the police system as an example of that. And so I'm curious to know, like, in that exercise you just described, where do people go next when they say out loud, well, it's probably a tall Black man wearing a hoodie. How do I now challenge this bias that I have versus running around looking for information that confirms my biases? How do I now do the work of challenging that so that I'm also not playing a role in these destructive systems that are happening in our society? That's an excellent question. And I think the reality is that we first need to acknowledge and come to a realization that we are, all of us, going to perpetuate those narratives, those injustices within our systems. And it's not necessarily because we're sitting down twiddling our thumbs saying we want to do these things, but the way that these narratives are embedded within our country, within our psyche, within our socialization as you know, citizens or residents of this country, we are all going to do it at some point, right? And so I think that it's really important for us to take a step back and say, I am playing a role in perpetuating narratives about poverty, perpetuating narratives about criminality, perpetuating narratives about vulnerability in many ways, shapes, and forms, not because I'm intentionally trying to sit down and be malicious, but because I live in this particular society and I've been socialized in this society. And I think that if we take that first step, we take a lot of that shame and guilt off of ourselves, right? So folks like Brene Brown and folks like Resma Menikin, they talk about shame and vulnerability, but also this idea of, you know, racialized trauma and specifically Resma talking about these concepts where whether we are white bodies or bodies of culture, as he terms it, we all have some sort of socialization that we've come to understand our either whiteness or our culture, right? And so we all have come to understand in some way, shape, or form, whether you're four or five years old or 50 years old, what that means in society, whether you're valued or devalued, whether you're prioritized or not, whether you're privileged or not. And so when you ask me a question around like, what's next? What do I do once I realize, wait, the person that I think of when I think about a quote unquote criminal is a black man. And now instead of like, you know, challenging that I'm going around kind of looking and seeking and saying, yes, this is it. The next step really is a lot of different steps. And I don't think that there's any one answer and I don't think that there's any one way to do it. I think 
a couple of the next steps are, and I know we talk a lot about educating ourselves. And so I think that there is a segment of the population that continues to need to educate themselves, right? But for others of us, I think it really boils down to why is that the case, right? Interrogating why those kinds of narratives or why those kind of images come to us, right? And so it's going to the news, to media and saying, okay, well, I thought of a Black man in an all-Black hoodie because the latest news story told me that that's what a quote-unquote criminal looks like, right? I keep seeing 50,000 articles about Black men being arrested and being incarcerated. So what do you want me to do? Like, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm being fed, right? And so it's interrogating, where do I get that from? Who told me that when I was in college? And I'm talking about me specifically. When I was sitting down in my criminal justice courses and my professors are talking about these, you know, criminology theories and strain theory and why people commit crimes and all of these kind of things. I'm looking like, that doesn't sound right. Mm. That doesn't resonate with me because when I think of the young kids in my neighborhood who were committing crimes, they weren't doing it because they were bored. They weren't doing it for thrill seeking. They were doing it out of need, right? They needed to get money to be able to put food on the table or to pay their rent or what have you. So yeah, they might have committed whatever we have designated as a crime in that regard, but it wasn't because they sat down and said, yes, I want to break the law. Yes, I am wired to break the law. It was because they needed to do it. So I think really the biggest what's next answer is interrogating where do we get these things from and then going to the sources and saying, is that actually accurate? So when we see a disproportionate amount of people who are Black or Brown incarcerated We need to go back and say, then, are they actually the ones committing all the crimes, right? Are they actually the one that's doing all the drugs or committing all the, you know, like, we have to start to kind of interrogate that and say, where can we get this information from that can actually help us expand and broaden our thinking around this area? And then I think another simple thing is getting around people who are the quote unquote stereotypical person that media or society has told us is a criminal or is this or that in some kind of unworthy way. And it's getting around them and saying, okay, wait, media says that you're going to be angry, right? Even when we think about Black women, oh, well, you know, media told me you're an angry Black woman and you're always upset because you think that some sort of injustice is happening to you. Get around her and see, wait a minute, what is happening to you? What kinds of experiences are happening in the same country where I am, where I might get a different experience or have a different experience? And then we start to break down some of those barriers, some of those ignorances, because sometimes that's just what it is. It's like, I've never been exposed. I don't know. And getting around folks who have lived this experience kind of opens that door. You're right. There is no one particular avenue. Also, it's ongoing. I would imagine yes. that this is not something that people can just pick up a textbook or read my grandmother's hand no. and say, now I'm an activist and I'm a full-blown ally and I've completed my anti-racism work. This is a lifelong journey. And it kind of brings me back a little to 2020 because I do know that that is the year that a lot of people started to honestly reconcile with the state of America. And I'm curious to know in your own research, because we had the coronavirus pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, there were hate crimes happening in the Asian American community. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know with your work, did you see a shift in your research around social vulnerability, race, class, 
all of the different systems that you've been studying within the last few years? Like, do you feel like 2020 has shifted things as well? Yeah. So before I answer you, I want to go back to a point that you just made. And I think it's really important to highlight that and underscore that. And this will tie into my answer. Many people incorrectly assume that learning something, so picking up a textbook, getting around people who have the lived experience is going to somehow solve the problem, right? It's somehow going to give you every answer you ever need on this topic. And then you never have to think about it again. You never have to do anything. You are quote unquote, officially cured, right? You're, I'm, you know, I'm not racist anymore or, you know, I'm not ignorant anymore in this particular regard. And I think that that sets us up for failure so many times because it is a lifelong journey. It will never be something that we stop pressing toward. It would never be something that we've fully achieved because we're not talking about something that grew overnight. It's not like we have been in this country and then 20 years ago, racism popped up and now we're trying to like quell racism from 20 years. We're talking about hundreds of years of ideology, hundreds of years of systems, hundreds of years of systematic reinforcement and perpetuation. So we have to be realistic that one conversation, one day or one course over the matter of 15 weeks or even, you know, some activism work for a decade or two decades, it's not going to immediately alleviate all of these kinds of issues that are going on. And there are going to be well-intentioned people who will go and do the classes and all of that and still turn around and call the cops, right? <laughs> they might even still vote for political candidates who literally cause harm to certain communities that they say they are in support of. And that's because at the end of the day, if we do not, as Resma says, you know, practice and do these reps to continue to build up racial healing, to continue to build up our literacy and our knowledge and our capacity to heal and grow in these areas, like it's, you know, a losing battle. So wanted to underscore that. But in my work in terms of 2020, I'm smiling. Obviously, the, the <laughs> listeners can't see me smiling, but maybe you can hear me smiling. 2020 was an interesting year because in many ways, I do think that some people really did reckon with what was going on. But I think in many ways, a lot of people did performative allyship. A lot of people did performative coming to the table and saying, yes, let's reckon with this because everybody was doing it, right? So if you even remember you know, everybody on Instagram was doing a black, black, black background <laughs> with, with, you know, with the white text and we stand behind you and we support and Black Lives Matter and everybody's coming out with their corporate statement about diversity, equity and inclusion and all of these kinds of things. But those are just band-aids, right? Those are just quick fixes because then the same company that says, yes, we stand behind Black Lives Matter or Yes, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you turn around, their board is still full white, right? You might have hired a diversity director or a diversity fellow or some sort of academic professor whose work focuses on DEI, but you haven't changed the actual structure. And so in my work, I saw a lot of what I thought was interest and capacity to make change to go for it and do the hard things, have the hard conversations, the sacrifices to make things work. And slowly but surely, not even that long after, so we're talking about summer 2020, I mean, really in the fall, people kind of was just like, okay, well, yeah, that was cute. Like, but next, because then when they realized they would have to start actually sacrificing real things or give up real power, a lot of people started stepping away. And so I was doing research with professionals who worked with people under community supervision when COVID hit. 
And I was already engaged in the project. So it wasn't because of COVID. I was actually looking at hurricanes in Texas, Louisiana and Florida. And then COVID hit and it shifted the participants that I was engaging with, but also what they were talking about. And as we were talking, a lot of them went back and forth, essentially, in their responses with saying, like, here are all of the impacts from COVID. But here are also these impacts from, you know, what we are terming the racial uprisings of 2020. So many of them were like, well, yeah, we have clients who are impacted by COVID and they are sitting in jail or they are at risk of going back to jail for whatever reason. But then at the same time, you have this really heavy grassroots activism that's going on saying, hey, actually, we see police violence happening over here and we're linking police violence to the violence of the carceral state. And we're linking this and saying, hey, the same things that we're calling for when it comes to defunding the police or same thing that we're calling for for reinvesting in communities and community resources instead of policing, many people started to link those things to incarceration and was saying, well, if you're going to defund the police, abolish prisons, right? And so in my research, in my field, I saw a lot of people making And it wasn't the first time, right? But making those ties, so really calling out the continuum of carceral violence and saying, hey, the activism that we're pouring into specifically police violence, let's also think about this from the perspective of incarceration and also from the perspective of community supervision. So I saw it come up in my work, but not really in the sense of, you know, the general public and what everyone else was doing in terms of that performative allyship. In my specific work, I saw folks really making those ties and saying, okay, wait, how can we build on the momentum that's happening in this season, in this time to be able to make some strides and changes in the work that we're doing? And so we did see it, like, for example, in New York, you had a lot of bail reform, a lot of things that were happening for the criminal legal system in 2020 that then ended up getting rolled back and pushed back and then eliminated after that, which was to be expected, right? Because anytime you have that kind of social change, once people start to see that it has the potential to change structures, once systems see that it has the potential to change systems, they are like, okay, how do we come back against this? So yeah, that's what I saw in my work. I saw a renewed commitment from activists and from advocates, from community organizations to say, hey, let's keep pushing, right? So let's keep pushing for the funding. Let's keep pushing for the policy. Let's start to radicalize some of these political candidates to put forward legislation that actually makes a difference, that kind of thing. And then on the flip side, I also saw in academia, everyone was putting out a statement and saying, oh, we support such and such and such. But I saw right through it, right? Because even for me in some conversations at the university or at several universities that we're connected to. It's just like, wait a minute. I don't think y'all are quite grasping it. Why is this particular person leading this initiative and this effort when there is a department full of talented, capable folks who could do this work, who had the lived experience, right? So what are we doing here? So yeah, it, it was an interesting time. And I smile because I think that so many people were too confident in what 2020 could do. And we saw kind of shortly thereafter that a lot of that momentum kind of fell to the wayside because people started to realize, oh, diversity, equity and inclusion work is not going to eradicate racism. Right, right. We'll be right back after this break.
Welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mina B. I do a lot of corporate wellness work. And when clients come to me to really help them shift company culture, especially around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and specifically focus on mental health in a workplace and Black mental health in a workplace, I'm like, well, you can add a seat to the table and put a Black woman there or a Black man. But if the person at the head of the table is still harboring racist ideologies, then that table still needs to be flipped and turned over, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's really important for people to realize that that performative action doesn't get us anywhere as a society. But what I really love about what you're kind of inadvertently saying, too, as you shared this response was, I know for me during that year, a lot of people were saying, like, this feels like an issue that's larger than me. Yes. So how do I show up? How do I fight the fight? And I think one of the things a lot of people had to realize or still need to realize is the importance of knowing what your role is and what you can give. Because honestly, girl, all the work you do, I could never. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I said I'm so happy I'm your friend because I could learn this from you. But me? Me doing it? Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Woo, just even hearing you talk, I'm like, you know what? Let me just continue to talk about implicit bias and like (laughs) boundaries and, you know, the impact of racism on our mental health. But let me stay in my mental health corner. Yeah. And you are in your activism research corner and there's someone else in the grassroots corner and there's someone else in a different corner. And I think what you're saying, too, as you were sharing that is I think a lot of people got overly confident or they started to put a lot of pressure on themselves to be every single thing I just named. Yes. When it's like, girl, maybe your only role is to talk to your family member about some of the things that they say, and that's it. Uh-huh. Right? Where my role is, let me continue to abridge social justice with mental right. health and talk about race and identity in the workplace, right? And you're doing your activism work through your own research, you know, as a PhD candidate. So I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's such an important takeaway for people to also listen to that and realize, like, there are going to be some things that are my place and there are some things that just aren't my place. A hundred percent. And you can also cause harm if you are trying to be in spaces that you really shouldn't be in because you don't have the knowledge or the skill set to address certain things. And so I think what you're saying is just so valuable in many different ways. I appreciate that. I love that you picked up on that because it's the truth, right? We cannot be all things to all people. We cannot do everything, right? And when you're in the activism space in particular, like if you are around people who are really about that life, then they will tell you, right? They'll quickly pull you to the side and say, hey, sis, you're doing too much, right? And the tenets of you when I think about activism or I think about rest as a radical action of resistance, when I think about these things and when we hear people talk about soft life, hashtag soft life, these things are tools to remind us that we're not machines, right? So as much as we want to see the world be a better place, we are not machines. We cannot necessarily snap our fingers. It's going to take hard work. But we cannot let that hard work grind us into nothingness, right? Grind us into the ground. And so, so many of us really do need to reckon with what is my role? What can I do? What do I have the capacity to do? What am I gifted and talented in? How can I help? And yeah, sometimes how can I push myself above what I'm comfortable? 
but not in such a way that it literally like consumes me or grinds me into dust. And also stay in your lane. Just because you are so passionate about racial justice, for example, doesn't mean that it's time for you to lead a book club or start leading courses and classes. You learned yesterday. Like this is not your time to start saying, okay, well now I'm about to gather everybody. Leave that to folks who are more seasoned, but maybe you can be the bridge between the seasoned folks and folks who are still trying to figure it out. And even I love what you said, some of us might just be called to our families or our closest circles. Some of us may never get the public platforms of the podcasts or the TV interviews as I'm in academia. Some of us may never publish a journal article or never get an academic job where we're teaching undergraduates a course on race and society. But it is important for us to know where can I show up in the best way possible, where I can show up as authentically me, genuinely me, show up in a way that I can actually add something and I'm not harming myself or harming others. And I'm also surrounded by people who know more than me, people who are more experienced than me, because they will also help me set those guardrails and those boundaries as opposed to me just like waking up one morning. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling pumped. I'm feeling super inspired to bring about social change for racial justice. It's like, okay, yeah, great. And now how do you plug into the millions of things that are already happening? Because I think also we think that we are the only ones that we have to start it and we have to lead it. And if we don't lead it, it doesn't happen. It's like, no, people have been fighting for racial justice for literal centuries. And so there are movements, there are spaces, there are organizations, there are resources where you can plug in. So when someone says, where do I start? It's like, Google it. Like, not even to be funny, like Google Mm -hmm. it, because there are things that are around you. There are people who are around you, resources that you can tap into. So, yeah, it's knowing your lane because, yeah, I admire your work and seeing, you know, really in that mental health space. And I think it's so beautiful because people are slowly but surely opening more and more to mental health and mental illness and understanding mental health impacts. And then also understanding the intersection of, you know, racial justice and social justice and mental health. And I just love that you're able to actually reach people and people are like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, yes, a social worker, but I'm good. I'm good. Let me stay over here with the research and the activism stuff and let my girl Mina B do her thing. So yeah, I, I think it's beautiful to be able to be in connection with people like you and other folks who are doing this work from their lanes. Because it does make a difference. We are all needed. We all have something to bring to the table. We absolutely do. And I want to let everyone know Felicia is a fellow social worker like me. Hey. I was like, I'm done though. Masters. I got it. I got my license. I'm done. You ain't catching me in no school building. (laughs) But Felicia. Social work. I understand. I said, I can't. Yes. And this is why I appreciate you, you know, and I appreciate people who do your work because as we're saying, like, it's important to know who we can go to because that also takes the pressure off of us to say, we have to know everything. And this is why I love that you said you also surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think we all should be doing that because that's how we learn. We all, most of the time we learn in our social circles and our intimate community. And, you know, and speaking of community, I want to shift a little sure. because I know we have been talking about your research and your role in academia, but you also do a lot of community work with your movement behind the walls between the lines. And I just want to tell y'all, Felicia is an amazing poet. Thank you. And I really want you to share with people what is behind the walls between the lines and what made you start that movement? 
Yes. So BTW, as I like to call it, started it back in 2014. I was graduating college and I said to myself, hey, you know, I have done this work in college. I was obviously going to school for social work, my placements. So in social work school, you have to do a placement for, you know, folks who don't know. You have to do a placement. So you usually go to an agency or some sort of organization and you might see clients or you might help out in some sort of way with their clients. And so all of my placements were actually in criminal justice spaces. So I actually did placements with young people who were involved in the criminal legal system, specifically those who were being held in detention and put on house arrest and all of these kind of things. And so in school, I'm doing this work. I end up doing a kind of a capstone project, if you will, on how community-based organizations can be social capital or provide social capital for children who are of incarcerated parents. And so I was doing that work academically, doing poetry, spoken word, kind of just like generally doing a lot of writing and just kind of being creative in that space. And then also just kind of thinking about, okay, how do I bring all of these things together? How do I bring my artistry together? How do I bring my activism together? How do I bring my academia together? How do I put it all in one package? And so as I was thinking and kind of just talking to friends and thinking about the things that I wanted to do in the world, Behind the Walls was born. At that time, I only actually imagined it to be a one-time exhibition where folks would come and see these pieces and experience some of my pieces, my poetry that talked about the impact of the criminal legal system for children, for young people. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this show and it's going to be one and done. And then obviously that's not what happened. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the following year, Michael Brown was killed and it really catalyzed something for me. It really like cemented, okay, this is not a one and done kind of situation. And this is also not just about children of incarcerated parents. This is about the criminal legal system generally. This is about racial inequity in America. It's about what makes Black people, brown people susceptible to being killed and shot down in the street. Like, what is that thing? Can we talk about that thing? And that thing is the thing that radiates throughout, you know, not just police violence, but also incarceration, also community supervision, also just day-to-day interactions as minoritized and marginalized folks. And so after the death of Michael Brown, I launched Behind the Walls with a showcase I had eight different artists come from across Philadelphia and New York, and they had their own background. So some of them were children of incarcerated parents. Some of them had been involved in the system themselves. Some people had other kind of direct links and impacts to the system. And we just performed. We performed poetry, music, dance. We just used art as this vehicle to kind of cut through a lot of the dialogue that is usually polarized, that's usually tense, right? So if we get on here and we say, let's talk about racism, right? A lot of people freeze up. And even when we think about that being, as you talked about earlier, kind of this trauma response, many people can't have just, okay, let's talk about racism. But many people can absorb and be able to receive these conversations about racism, about race, about injustice, about inequality, about harm, in art, because art is in many ways this kind of great tool or great mechanism or vehicle for people to see humanity within one another. And so I wanted to use that as a vehicle to talk about these topics that in many ways ended up being polarizing. And so we did that showcase. It was an absolute hit in so many ways, just like 
opened up a new door and I realized like, wait a minute, I want to do what people now term artivism, which is the intersection of art and activism. And I wanted to be able to take the things that I was researching in school, the things that I was doing on the ground in terms of being connected to community organizations and then also being connected to so many creators, so many artists. I wanted to take that and continue to do that. So since then, since 2014, we have been doing showcases. We've done workshops, documentaries, screenings. We've done community dialogues. We've done both in-person and virtual exhibits et cetera, et cetera, and kind of just been going on and on and on and on and have been teaming up and collaborating with artists, with grassroots organizations, bigger community-based organizations, actors within the general kind of communities that we're in, in terms of advocates and activists there, and doing this work both on a national and international level. And it has been just tremendous because, again, it shows that there are so many lanes, so many ways to do this work. We are not all going to be academics. We're not all going to sit and read hundreds and hundreds of pages. We're not going to all sit and read 200-page dissertations or 200-page research books, right? And many of us are not even going to have access to those things. And so many people are locked out of the knowledge generation that's happening within academia. And folks who are on the ground having the lived experiences, their experiences are not being represented in that knowledge generation. And so my work really exists in that space where it's saying, hey, I'm linked to academia. I fully believe in the power of academia and the power of research to change lives. And I also recognize that people on the ground have very lived experiences and different experiences than a controlled experiment or some sort of research. And so how do we bridge those things together through a vehicle or through a mechanism where is relatable, is affordable, is accessible to people. And so that's what Behind the Walls does. I really appreciate the work that you're doing and the way you are contributing to the larger community through the work that you're doing. Thank you. And really inviting other people into that journey. And so I want to ask you a question before we wrap that I ask everyone on the show. And Felicia, I want to know, what does community care mean to you? This is a good one. This is a good one, Bina. And the reason why this is a good one, because I can I can feel some of the tears actually welling up in my eyes. The reason why is because, and, you know, I didn't know she was going to ask this, but it literally just hit me. But in so many ways, the work that I've been doing has impacted my physical, mental, and emotional well-being, right? You don't do this kind of work and walk away unscathed. You don't do this kind of work and not feel the heaviness, not feel sometimes the defeat or the hopelessness, right? You look at such a large system and you say nothing is ever going to change. And sometimes it feels debilitating and kind of purposeless to continue pushing to fight. And one of the things that have really kept me going is what I consider to be community care, which is really being able to tap into the folks that love me, the folks that believe in me, the folks that believe in this work and say, okay, Felicia, you're doing too much, Mm -hmm. right? Felicia, you need to rest. Felicia, you need to take a break. Felicia, I see that your calendar has too many things on it. You need to chalk that. Felicia, when's the last time you took a vacation or you took a nap or you stepped away from the computer, right? And so for me, community care is being vulnerable enough to share the challenges of what it means to do this work as the person that I am and allowing the folks that love me, the folks that support me to hold me accountable, actually, and say, how are you taking care of you 
in the midst of trying to achieve social change. The reason why, you know, it kind of made me a little bit emotional is because even now, specifically in this season of my life, like I just went through a major health scare and it stopped me in my tracks. And it wasn't, you know, it's not the first time because, again, as I said, this has impacted me in many ways. It's not the first time, but this time around, I kind of stopped and I looked at it and I said, you know, people around me, they see me and they love me and support me, not because I'm an activist, not because I am, you know, a poet or a performer or an academic. They support me. They love me because of me. And I think that that for me is what community care looks like. It's folks reminding me, folks looking at me and saying, hey, like you are more than what you do. You're more than what you quote unquote contribute. And likewise, for me, kind of giving that back, I think of community care along those same lines for like even the women that I collaborate with my research to look at them and say, you're not a participant to me. You're not someone that I come to extract information from. You're a collaborator, right? Your experiences matter to me. And I want you to be able to teach me as much as I am learning from, you know, what you're telling me, how I'm going to use this information. So it's this like idea of, for me anyway, recognizing the interdependence, recognizing that, you know, I'm not alone and I don't need to be alone. And there are so many people really around me and really centering myself in my research. I use a lot of theoretical frameworks like Black feminist thought, for example, critical race feminism, for example. And those are the things that tell us like we have, and by we, I mean women of color, have these unique experiences within this country And we show up for ourselves, we show up for our communities and our families, and we make it. (laughs) Like, that's how we make it, because we show up for one another. So, yeah, community care for me means showing up for one another and allowing folks to hold me accountable so that I can show up for myself appropriately so that I can continue, not just to do this work, but to be well, regardless of whether or not I'm doing this work to be well. So, yeah, that's what community care means to me, and I am going to, you know, step away from this conversation and remember that as well, even more so, because I think, you know, I always need to be reminded. I always need to be reminded that I'm more than what I do. As much as it is great, me showing up as my full, authentic and whole and healed and well self is going to be so much better than anything else. So, oh, I'm so glad that you shared all of that, because I also think that the people listening need to hear that need to hear those outlined steps of like me showing up authentically and me being genuine and me allowing people to help me and taking feedback and taking advice and also like being vulnerable in that space. And so, Felicia, thank you so much. I am actually grateful that I get to be in community with you. Yes. So please let listeners know where can they find you and how can they stay engaged with your work? Sure. So you can find all things me at FeliciaHenry.com. Everything is there, all my socials, all my academic work, all behind the walls work. Everything is there. (laughs) Thank you so, so much, Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I'm just so excited for all things meet and be. Of course, I'm rooting for you always. Number one fan. And I'm rooting for you, girl. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this conversation informative, please share today's episode with your friends and on your social media accounts. And of course, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. 
We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the Very Well Mind podcast as we explore the power of community.